0: Invite you to open your Bibles to John, chapter four. John chapter four. Uh, This is actually going to be my last time preaching for the next uh, five to maybe six weeks because of my throat. I I haven't spoken a word since last Sunday, Uh, and I realized just when I was going through reading this morning that there was no way I could keep doing this. So I'm taking a five to six week break. I. I would love your prayers during that time, just for one, that these, no, I don't know what they are all over my vocal cords, they would heal, uh, and it's actually going to be a great time for the church. Um, we, we've got some great preachers coming up. Jeff is going to preach for a couple of weeks, one of our elders, Dave Harvey, who's the executive director for the Sojourn Network, he's going to come and preach, and if history is any indicator, usually when I step down for a couple weeks or so from preaching, our church grows. Uh, and and so I I fully expect that to happen. Um, I also invite you just to pray for our church uh, over the next few weeks. As many of you know, we have been talking with the owners of this building about possibly uh, purchasing this place, and and we are still negotiating with them, and and hopefully we'll come to some kind of uh, agreement within the next few weeks or so, and so we would really appreciate your prayers concerning that. So John chapter 4, we're going to begin reading, or we're going to read the same story we read last week. We'll begin in verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He he was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Pray with me. Our Father, we do ask that through your spirit you would speak to us, that we would drink deeply of you, Jesus, that we drink deeply of your word. Lord, we believe that you use your word to work a deep change within us. You change our hearts, you change our minds, you change our actions. And so we pray that that would happen in this moment, that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore, but Lord, may your words remain, and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Tonight, we're going to pick up where we left off last week as we began looking at this story, and we're going to take a look at worship And I want to begin by asking a question. What do you think God is impressed with in our worship? When we gather together in this place um, in order to worship the creator of heaven and earth, what exactly do you think God is impressed with? Is he impressed with our music? Uh, We do have fantastic musicians. We we have wonderful music. I'm impressed by our music. Is that what God is impressed by? Do you think God is impressed by our giving? You know, after the service, God He 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 looks at the offering, He counts it up. Is is He impressed by how much we give? What, What if we were to give every dime we have? Would God be impressed with us then? Is God impressed with my preaching? Is God up there taking notes? You know, I, I didn't know that about myself, you know. And he's, he's writing these down, he's impressed. Or is he impressed with our facilities? Or if we had really nice facilities, would he be impressed with that? Marble floors, theater seating. Is God impressed with our prayers or with our passion? What exactly is God impressed with by our worship? The answer to that question is, God is only impressed by his son, Jesus. He's not impressed by anything else. He is only impressed with his son, Jesus, and his sinless life and his atoning death on our behalf. And God is only glorified when Jesus and Jesus alone is lifted up in our worship. The only way for God to be glorified in our music or glorified in our giving or glorified in my preaching or in our prayers or in our passion is if Jesus Christ is central to it. If these things are fueled by the spirit of Jesus and if they are lifting up high the name of Jesus, that is the only way Jesus or the Father will be impressed. In our worship, Jesus must increase and we must decrease. And I wanted to just put this out there before we even begin to dig into this text this morning because this is our North Star. This is our foundation of worship right here. It is Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Worship comes from him. It comes from his spirit. It is through him. It is through the atoning work of Jesus. He is the way. And it is back to him, since he is the object of praise of our worship, from him and through him and to him are all things. Jesus is the answer to the question, what is God impressed with? Jesus is also the answer to another question. How can our souls be satisfied how can we finally quench this thirst? How can I get the most out of my life? Jesus is the answer to those questions. And that's what we looked at last week. We looked at how Jesus is the one who gives us living water. He is the one who quenches that deep thirst that we have. He's the one who gives us joy. So the answer to the question What is God impressed with in our worship? The answer is Jesus. The answer to the question, how can I be satisfied in this life, is Jesus. And, And I want you to see right from the start that God is glorified in our worship through Jesus. We are satisfied in our lives through Jesus. So the glory of God and our joy are not at odds, but they meet together in the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus increases in our lives, God is more glorified and we receive more joy. God's glory and our joy are not at odds, but they are wed together in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is what this story has been teaching us. It's what worship is all about. The word worship, And this story is mentioned at least 10 times, and so it's pretty easy to figure out that the theme of this text is worship. Jesus tells this woman in verse 23, The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father and Spirit in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father's seeking people to worship Him. this is why Jesus is having this really awkward conversation with a Samaritan woman is because the Father is seeking worshipers, seeking her. He's gone out of his way to Samaria in order to find a heretical, adulterous, despised woman and to make her a worshiper of God, for her joy and for God's glory. Now, every person here is a worshiper. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you believe, where you've come from. You are a worshiper. Everybody is a worshiper of something or someone. Because as human beings, we were created as worshipers. I don't say we were created to worship as if it was an option. You were created worshiping. You can't not worship. You will always worship someone or something. We see this in the very first of the Ten Commandments, in which you shall have no other gods before me. The options that God puts before us is you can either worship false gods or you can worship the right god, but we don't have an option of not worshiping any gods. We are worshipers. The question is, who will we worship? And God says, if you want living water, if you want joy, then you come to me and worship. Perhaps this is a good time to define worship. I realize I've, I've gone over a sermon about worship and haven't, haven't actually defined it yet. So let me, let me def- talk about exactly what worship is. We, we typically, we think of worship as singing, um, and this can be a part of worship, but don't associate worship with just singing. I mean, here in this story that is all about worship, singing isn't even mentioned. But you do have things like adultery mentioned, racial tension, gender tension, sexual tension. Somehow worship is related to all of those things. Uh, Worship has to do with sex. It has to do with race relations. It has to do with how we treat people of the opposite sex. Worship is not some interlude from life once a week, one day a week in which we gather together and we sing. That's, That's not what worship is. Worship has to do with all of life. It takes place in the middle of our life. Let's actually look at the word worship itself. The the word worship comes from an old English word meaning "worth," from worth ship or worth shape. Worth shape. And this happens when, when our lives are shaped by the worth of something. That is worth shaping. Any of y'all ever watch the Antique Roadshow? Uh, my girls and I—we sometimes we YouTube little snippets of the Antique Roadshow. Um, I love it when, uh, you know, when when they're coming and the uh, estimator, whoever he is, uh, is about to give what he thinks the appraiser uh, the value of this object, and, and we always hit pause and we try to do the guessing game, you know, how much we think it's worth. Uh, and, and I particularly like when somebody comes in with what they think is a priceless heirloom. You know, they come in, they're like, this was handed down for generations to my family, and they get it there, and the person kind of looks at it, and they're like, it's costume jewelry, it's worthless, maybe five bucks, and I love seeing the devastation. And I don't know if, if what that says about me, but I, I, just, I just love watching them just, know. no. It's, it's also fun watching the opposite. I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, any of y'all watch the person who brought in the, uh, the Navajo chief blanket? I mean, that was pretty impressive. This, this old man, uh, he brought in a blanket. And uh, they're like, do you know anything about it? And he's like, well, not really. It was, I know it's old. It was from my grandmother. I just had it you know, thrown over a chair at her house. And, and he was just more curious than anything. He didn't think that it actually had any value but, but the moment this appraiser saw it, uh, actually, he said, my heart stopped. And, uh, and, and you see, he's starting to perspire, his voice is trembling. I mean, as he's just looking at this, and he's just studying it more. And he goes, uh, sir, you have a national treasure. This thing belongs in a museum. This, this is worth easily $500,000. Later, it actually went to auction for $1.8 million. And you just see this, this guy just stunned. The, the appraiser's life, as, as his voice is trembling, and as he's, he's studying it, and he's Googling things, and he's bringing in people to look at it, you can see what's happening with him is he is beginning to be shaped by the worth of what he's studying. The more he looks into it, the more excited he gets... And then you see as he tells this old man that this is worth $500,000 and belongs in a museum, that all of a sudden this man's entire life has now changed. He is going to be shaped by the worth. I mean, when he, when he came to this, he, I'm sure he just probably like threw this blanket in the, the back of his car and drove here. How do you think he went home with this blanket? Do, do you think he just picked it up and like just threw it? No, he's like, everybody be careful. You know, everybody's just gently folding it. He's thinking, I probably need to wrap this thing in plastic. Maybe I should get an armored car taking it home. I don't, you know, what well, what do I do? And and I'm sure when he got it home, he probably put it in a safe at first until he, until he took out insurance on it. After it was insured, he he probably wanted to, to display it because now it's beautiful. It's worth five hundred thousand dollars. You don't keep it in a corner. So he probably takes down, you know, the the painting of his grandmother, and he puts up, you know, the quilt or the the, the blanket there instead. His entire life is now being shaped by the worth of this thing. That's what worship is. He's viewing money differently. I mean, before he would have never thought if somebody came to him and said, do you want to take an insurance policy out on that? And they're like, why? It's just a blanket in the corner. Now he's like, I've got whatever it takes. I will spend money on this. Do you want to display this? It's beautiful. No, I mean, it's just a blanket. It's worth $500,000. It was a Navajo Indian chief. We need to display this thing. It's beautiful. We need to protect it. It became the center of his conversations. He, He would tell all of his friends about this. It occupied all of his thoughts, I'm sure, for weeks, if not months. He was shaped by the worth of it. This is worship. Worship happens when you begin to look at God closely and you begin to be shaped by him. You know, no one in the Bible ever, when they see God, have to be told to worship him. When they see him, they fall on their faces in worship when they see such beauty, when they see the value. When we realize the extraordinary value of Jesus, our whole lives begin to take shape around him. You begin to spend money on things that you never thought you'd ever spend money on. Giving money to the poor, sure. Giving money to our missions, absolutely. And you do it gladly and freely because of the value that you have, the treasure you have. You'll give away your time and your energy. You're gonna tell people about Jesus with this joyful sense of urgency. And with full hearts, you're gonna take delight in gathering together with other people and just, just talking about this treasured possession. Fill you with great joy to do so. This is worship. Listen, we all are worshiping something. You were created worshiping. And so your lives at this very moment in this room, they're currently being shaped by what you value, by what you treasure. So for instance, if your physical body is something that you really, really treasure and you see as supremely valuable, then you're going to spend all of your time at the gym. When you get home, you're going to spend your other remaining time just you know, looking up, you know, scouring the internet for, for any kind of health articles, reading whatever fitness magazines out there. You'll be spending your money on the, the latest nutritional supplements and, and health food. And, and if you have any leftover dimes or nickels, you'll, you'll spend it all on Lululemon or, or whatever. You'll bankrupt yourself just, just for health. And I'm not. Please hear me. I'm not saying that your physical bodies at health have, have no value. Of course, they it has value, but it is not supremely valuable. It shouldn't shape your life the way it does. If it begins to be this all-consuming, consuming, shaping thing, that's idolatry, that's worship. If having a spouse or wanting a spouse or it becomes the one thing that you, you must have that you treasure more than anything else. Your whole life will either be shaped by trying to find that spouse or by trying to please that spouse. Or if it's having children, that's the one thing you value more than anything else. Your whole life will be consumed with either trying to have a child or when you have that child, your lives will revolve around that child. It's worship. worship. For some of you, it might be education becomes the one all-consuming thing. And, and so you think, well, I, I can only live in the neighborhoods where there's great education. I have to put all of my money to where there's the best education. All my energy and pursuit has to be for the best education. And it becomes the thing you value more than anything else. And if you just take a step look back, you're thinking, my, my entire life is being shaped by this. And what Jesus is saying is that's a broken cistern. Yeah, it's good for a sip, but it doesn't hold water. It doesn't quench your thirst. And if you trust in those things, you will become a slave to those things and you will be absolutely filled with anxiety. Only the Lord liberates you and gives you peace. You know, I have... I found a good way to, uh, for me personally, to try to evaluate what I, uh, what I value, what idols I might have in my life. Uh, I ask myself a couple questions. One of them is this, Joel, what are you meditating on or, or what are you daydreaming about? Daydreaming and meditating are the same thing. What are you daydreaming about? Where, where do my thoughts naturally go? Is it on the beauty of Christ or is it, you know, an extra bedroom and half bath? Is it decorating? Is it, you know, was what, what, it physical appearance? What, what, what am I daydreaming about? Another way to evaluate what you really value is to ask the question, where do I find community? People gather around a common value or a common treasure. So ask yourself, is, where's is my community? What are we all gathering around? To, to just p- pick, you know, just in the south, really low-hanging fruit here, football, all right? I mean, there, there's some people here, there is no way you would ever possibly miss the chance to watch a game with your friends. That's community gathered around essential central value. And there's nothing wrong with that until it begins defining your life, until it becomes the very thing you're thinking of constantly, the very thing you're looking forward to constantly, the thing that you're spending your money towards constantly. Jesus, he would say it this way and um, say, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Say, so that's the question is, where's your treasure? Where, where are you putting your money? I'll show you what you're worshiping. So, so worship is worth shaping. It's being shaped by the worth of something. Jesus told this woman, if she knew the real value of what he had to offer, said, if you knew the gift I had, if you knew what I had to offer, you would ask me for it. Let's, let's see how Jesus helps her to see this value and, and brings her to a place of worship. Um, after Jesus calls out her sin, remember she says, uh, I, I really would like not to have to go to this well each day. And Jesus says, go get your husband. I mean, it's that, the awkward conversation there. After that happens, we, we read her response in verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our father is worshiped on this mountain. But you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Uh, This ever happened to you? Um, You're sharing your faith. You've just talked about the gospel, the the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And uh, the person's response is this. Yeah, well, what about the crusades? And they're like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? And you go back to the death, burial, the resurrection of Jesus, and they're like, yeah, but do you believe in gay marriage? Like, what? What? Where, did, where did that come from? So you go back again to the gospel, and they're like, you know, a church, it's only filled with hypocrites. Why is that? And what that is is Distraction is just throwing out some kind of theological rabbit trail for you to go after because you've gotten too close to home and so they're just throwing out something for you to chase. And, and this woman is doing the same thing to Jesus. He presses right in. She tells the truth, sort of. I'm not married. You know, we, we hide our best lies through truths. I'm not really married. And Jesus is like, that's right, you've had five husbands and the one you're living with is not really your husband. That's right, you told the truth. Technically, that's what Jesus is saying. Busted. So, what mountain am I supposed to worship on? I mean, she's just throwing out this. You say this, I, you know, Jews say this, Samaritans say this. But Jesus won't be deterred. He gets right back to the heart of the issue. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, what Jesus is saying here is so counter-cultural, it would make a modern person cringe, because it goes against every modern moral fiber in our being. Jesus looks at this woman and says, you are wrong." Doesn't say you're close. Just a little, just he's like, you're wrong. You're dead wrong. You worship what you don't even know. And he, he would say this to the Samaritan woman because the Samaritans, they had rejected 34 of the 39 books of the Old Testament. They, they only believed in the Pentateuch, but even of the Pentateuch, the first five books, they only picked and chose what they wanted. And Jesus says, the question is not where, it's who. You're not even worshiping the right person. You're not worshiping the God of the Bible. And so out of a deep love for this woman, Jesus says, you are wrong. I'm not going to let you get off on some technicality or some distraction. It's the very person that you're worshiping is wrong. You're worshiping the wrong person. Unless you go to the God of the Bible. He then tells her what real worship looks like. Verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. What, is, what does Jesus mean by this? Worship Him in spirit and in truth. We quote it all the time, but what does He mean? It's it's actually pretty complicated. It's a hard question to answer. Um, I could give you as many answers as I have commentaries on this. All right. Well, one of the main questions as raised in every commentary is what does Jesus mean by worship in spirit? Is he talking about the Holy Spirit here, or is he talking about our spirit here? My answer to that question is yes. Yes. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is talking about our spirit. And I say that because just one chapter earlier, uh, when... Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. He said, that which is of the flesh is flesh, or that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. That which is born of the spirit is spirit, meaning that when the spirit of God comes upon us, our formerly dead spirit becomes alive. We are born again. The only way we have an alive spirit is, is because of the Holy Spirit. So real worship happens as a result of God's Spirit awakening our dead spirits. And I think this is the minimum of what we could say. We could probably say more about what Jesus means here, but but at least this is the minimum that we could say about what he says about worshiping God and spirit. True worship doesn't happen in a place but it happens when God's spirits waken, God's spirit wakes up our dead spirits. We can worship him in spirit, not in a place, not by making sure our form is just right, making sure, you know, we're doing everything a particular way. That's not how we go about worship. Uh, Worship now, because God has breathed life into us, can flow from our heart and it will encompass all of our life. we, We hear these words by Paul, kind of shedding light into this. Romans 12, he says, present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Later in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So eating is an act of worship. It can be an act of worship. Drinking can be a way to glorify God. Everything you do can be done to glorify him. Now, if, if you're just eating something, and that's really what you value is right there, you're worshiping that. But if you're, you're eating this and you're like, God, this is a gift from you. This reminds me of Your goodness. Let me see this as a symbol, not the end. This is pointing me to something greater. Thank you. Eating becomes an act of worship. Otherwise, eating becomes an end in itself. This is worship in spirit. Jesus, then, he adds the words, and in truth. We must worship him in spirit and in truth. That truth is standing before this woman at this moment. When Jesus says truth, he's not talking about some abstract truth, some some intellectual truth, but he's talking about truth as a person. Yes, this is biblical truth, but Jesus is the word made flesh standing before her in this moment. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Nobody worships God except through him. He is the truth. And so actually what we see here, we don't don't have time to go deep into this, but you see the whole trinity at work. Jesus says if you want to worship the Father, then you need the Spirit of God to awaken your dead spirits, and then you need to believe in me because I provide access to the Father. The woman responds to Jesus in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. This is actually kind of humorous uh, for my second football reference of of the day. This This is this woman just punting the ball. That's what she's doing. She's just kicking the ball. It's, it's the, well, I guess we'll never know kick. You know, we'll just have to ask the Messiah when he comes. Let's, let's, let's just end this conversation because let's just agree to disagree. We can't know. And Jesus says, well, the Messiah has come. I am he. This is the first I am statement in the book of John. He says, I am he. Jesus is the one who both makes our worship possible and Jesus is the one who is the object of our worship. Once again, Jesus has to be central because that's all God's impressed with. You know, last week, I mentioned that as Jesus is interacting with this woman, he, uh, he is painfully removing barrier after barrier after barrier until finally the greatest barrier is left, and that is sin. Sin. It's sin. Well, at this point, this barrier of sin still remains. So the question is, how can this woman come to a place of worship? Even if she were to to see Jesus as yes, okay, you're, I see you. You you're living water. Yes, you've you are supremely valuable. I want to shape my whole life around you. I, I want I want to possess you. I want to take you in as my treasured possession, if you will. She can't afford it because her righteousness is as filthy rags. She can't purchase that. If she might want to worship, she still feels this huge barrier of our sin. Perhaps some of you in this room are there today. Maybe, maybe you've been coming to church and you're thinking, you know what? I'm I kind of am at this stage in my life where I just need to go to church. I need to turn over a new leaf. I, I need to become a better person. Uh... So I'm going to church, and and maybe you've you've begun getting interested in God, but as you have gotten closer, what you've realized is that there is a great barrier. You're not feeling more intimacy with God. You're actually feeling farther away from Him, because as you try to pursue Him, you're just realizing this enormous barrier of your sin. Even as you're beginning to find Him beautiful, what do you do about the sin problem? Jesus tells us here that he is going to deal with this. And he, he does this by mentioning the hour. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, trust me. The hour is coming. When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Verse 23. But the hour is Is coming. It is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, this hour that is being referred to here is often brought up in John's gospel, and it always refers to the death of Jesus, the death, his resurrection, his ascension, this climactic hour or event that is going to happen. This hour is coming. And Jesus is saying it's it's now even breaking through because I am literally standing before you in this moment. And Jesus is saying here that the hour is coming when sin will be dealt with. The greatest barrier in your life will be removed. And you can finally worship. There's no longer going to be a need uh, for any temple there's no longer going to be no debate about is it here, is it there, where is it? There's no longer going to be need any debate because there's going to be no temple because I will replace the temple. There's no longer going to be a need, a need a place to make sacrifices because I'm going to be the sacrifice. There's no longer going to be a need for a high priest because I will rise and I will ascend to be a high priest forever. And I will live to make intercession for you that this sin barrier is going to be removed forever. And Jesus says, if you believe this, if you believe this, then this living water will come to you and your thirst will be satisfied. Jesus said, the father is seeking worshipers. And I'm sure he looked dead at this woman right in the eyes when he said that. The Father is seeking worshipers. Are you listening? Will you come? Will you be one of those worshipers? It's the same question that he brings before us. Will you come and worship him in spirit and in truth? Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your son. And in this moment with all we have, we cling to him. We don't cling to any good work, any, any prayer, any music, any passion we might have. You are not impressed with any of those things. But you are impressed with your son. And so we cling wholly to him. He is the one who enables us to worship and he is the object of our worship. So Father, through your spirit, I pray that we would be able to lift up high the name of Jesus in this place. For your glory and for our joy. May we drink from the wells of living water. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.